Good morning, Isadora Kosowski. Welcome on VH Berries. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You spent the last few months uh, covering the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital in Los Angeles. How do you personally feel? Uh, well, I feel heartbroken and devastated by the impact of COVID-19 on the communities in Los Angeles, particularly communities of color at Martin Luther King Community Hospital. The majority of people who have become critically ill from COVID-19 are part of our Latinx communities. So people of color, members of our Latinx community, members of our African-American community have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, uh, largely because of our unequal healthcare system and a predisposition to certain health problems that make people more critically ill when they contract COVID-19. So my heart is heavy in the aftermath of a period of time inside Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital, as well as time in a, in a subsequent hospital for, <clears throat> excuse me, a body of work that has yet to come out. So I've spent a substantial amount of time in COVID-related intensive care units in the last few months, sitting with individuals, sitting with families, sitting with healthcare workers, with nurses, with respiratory therapists, with doctors, with perfusionists, people who focus on circulation of blood. I am forever changed by my time amongst these people who have been afflicted by this horrible virus. And I don't think I'm ever going to be the same, but I think that I wouldn't be human if I was not altered by my time sitting with people who are battling a disease. Most of the people that Sherry Fink, the writer, an investigative reporter at the New York Times and I spent time with passed away from COVID-19. So I carry the spirits of all of those people in my heart and I think of them every day as well as their families who are sitting with the tragic loss, the absence of their loved ones. You are carrying their spirit and if I understood correctly, right now in California where you are, there is a surge, um, a significant, a significant surge and um for example january was the most deadly month there we have improved in california uh, since our major surge in december and january we are doing fairly well with vaccinations and the number of people who are critically ill in intensive care units has declined here but in the months of december and january <clears throat> excuse me, into February, the amount of people in ICUs here was catastrophic. People who were struggling with the virus at home was very high, and there has been tremendous loss in LA County in the state of California. In the middle of January, we were about to surpass the level of death experienced in New York in the spring. And when I was in Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital embedded in the ICU, LA County surpassed the amount of people, the state of California surpassed the amount of people who passed away from COVID in New York. So it has been a time of great bereavement, of great loss in Los Angeles County, with some families more disproportionately impacted by it than others. Um, like I said, the community in South Los Angeles and East Los Angeles, the Latinx communities in those areas have been tremendously impacted. They consist of many of our essential workers, people who have had to go out uh, regardless of quarantine status to be able to 
assist us with some of the most fundamental industries. And that made them more susceptible to contracting the virus. They did not have the luxury to be able to stay at home. Many of those people, our bus drivers, our janitors, people working in the service industry, people who, like I said, cannot make the choice of staying at home, uh, who need to be able to provide for their families, were out in the field and in their occupations contracting COVID-19. Um, some of those people became critically ill and Sherry Fink, uh, investigative reporter, and I met many of those individuals at Martin Luther King Community Hospital. They are hardworking, jovial people uh, devoted to their families. We spent time with two fathers, Gabriel Flores and Emilio Virgen. They were two men who were often very upbeat, fun-loving, devoted to their Catholic faith, their Christian faith, and happened to both become ill and were both in the ICU. We shadowed the two of them while they were critically ill and interacted extensively with their families. I spent a lot of time with Mr. Flores's wife and oldest son, Manuel, and we didn't know what was gonna to happen to both Gabriel and Emilio, and they both tragically passed on January 21st from the virus, five hours apart from each other. And I've continued to have contact with their children as they've navigated this time in the aftermath of the losses of their fathers. And as you said, our lives, your life, will never be the same again. So you have to take some precaution whilst taking pictures in the hospital, for example. Yeah, I don't think that there's enough PPE to shield you from pain, though. We wear, I wore four sets of protection. So I wear glasses when I'm photographing. Then I wear goggles. Then I wear a face shield. And then I'm looking through my camera. So that's four sets of, of glass or, or plastic. And while I'm protected, excuse me, from the virus, while wearing all of that, I'm not shielded from absorbing the grief, the loss, the pain that I am witnessing, that I am sitting with. And I wouldn't expect myself to. I think when you become a documentary photographer, you know that you are going to be holding space for the most fragile moments in people's lives, that you're gonna be in an intimate covenant with people time and time again, and that is just part of being a storyteller of being with people in their private lives. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege for me to be able to be with the families of Emilio Virgen and Gabriel Flores. It's a privilege for me to have been with all of the people that I have spent time with since I was 13 and began photographing. So I don't consider <clears throat> I don't consider the pain, the suffering, the uncertainty that I sit with as a storyteller to be a burden whatsoever. It affects me greatly. I bring it home with me. It influences my life choices. It influences my perceptions. But it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be let in to people's lives to make a document of their experiences that's permanent, that's public. It's a highly vulnerable bond that is created uh, when people allow me in. And so often their, their responses are very powerful ones that they are comforted, that there is an archive of a particular time in their lives. I mean, for some people, 
I spend years with them. So they have, you know, for example, uh, a young man that I started documenting in a juvenile detention center in 2012. He was 13. He's now 22. His name is Vincent. And he has a documentation of the majority of his teens into his adulthood, a documentation of him going from a boy to being a man. And that's something actually he's very proud of and something something that he cherishes, that there is this documentation of his life that he can reflect on. I think it's also validating for people to have these images because they're not only evidence of their experiences, they're also a validation of their reality. Absolutely. And Isadora Kosowski, yesterday you worked for uh, the National Geographic uh, magazine. Is it a work that was related to the hospitals and all these subjects? No, I, I'm, well, it's hard to say if anything is not related to the pandemic right now as we live in a pandemic. I think it's impossible to extrapolate um, any story at this point from the pandemic. Um, but no, I wasn't working on something that's necessarily related to the pandemic for National Geographic recently. It, I'm working on a long-term story with them that deals with senior citizens, which I've been, which is a community I've been working with, or I should say communities I've been working with for many years. And I've been building a project with them, um, actually since 2019. Some of, some of the work had to be delayed because of the pandemic and various issues around travel. So I have been working in increments, um, which is often the case in the kind of work that I do. And I am very proud to be a contributor to National Geographic. I love everything that they do. They give us photographers often time to be able to develop projects. I would really much like to retrace the journey of your life, Isadora Kosowski, because you started your uh, photographer career very young at the age of 14. Yes, I began photographing when I was 13, I picked up a camera because of a black and white development class in Los Angeles at my school. We didn't learn much of anything about photography in this class. It's actually the only photography class I've ever taken. We learned how to develop 35 millimeter film. And I picked up the camera and I knew that it was what I wanted to do with my life. I held the camera in my hands and I knew that it was going to be the great love of my life. And that has continued to be the case 14 years later. I think I fall in love with documentary photography more and more every day. And I'm continually grateful that at such a young age and a time where I felt so lost and so broken and so alone that I found something that anchored me, that helped me connect with others, and that made me a lifelong learner. Because ultimately the people that I document, they are teachers, they're mentors on life. They teach me about how to be in touch with my own humanness and how to embrace my humanity and honor who I am. With my photography, I found a way to communicate my own pain through documenting other people. And I learned a bit of what I had referenced earlier, which is how to be with people. A lot of photography has nothing to do with being a photographer. I mean, specifically documentary photography or photojournalism. Oftentimes, I'm sitting with people more than I'm photographing. It takes time to build trust. 
and it takes time for people to feel comfortable so that you can begin photographing them unnoticed, so that you can begin photographing them as if you're not there, so that you as the documentarian become a part of the fabric of their world versus a distraction. So I began photographing when I was 13. I knew I always wanted to be a journalist. I used to watch Christiane Amanpour on CNN. I used to watch um, documentaries about her time in Bosnia. And I thought I wanted to be a war correspondent. So I was set on doing conflict photography initially. I thought I would spend a few years documenting in my community and then probably go abroad to do conflict photography once I turned 17 or 18. But I realized that I was much more drawn to conflicts that are walled off from view, conflicts that are unnoticed, conflicts behind walls within institutions, conflicts within families, within intimate partnerships. I realized I was more interested in hidden wars, in war zones that go unacknowledged in people's homes and inside people's minds. So I embarked on this journey to document various communities in Los Angeles County at that point. I was 14 and I went to a local skilled nursing facility. I walked in, <laughs> no, one, no one said anything. I think they thought I was somebody's grandchild. I didn't fully understand how to negotiate institutional access at that point. So I just went into the facility and I met a man named CJ. He was, actually, excuse me, I'm sorry, his name was TJ. And he was a musician and someone working at the facility doing music therapy and activities with senior citizens and adults with disabilities who were housed at this facility. We were in the elevator and he saw my camera and he said, oh, cool camera. And I was really excited that somebody had noticed me. He had uh, Ray-Bans on, sunglasses on, and he had a, an acoustic guitar on one of his shoulders. And I said, well, thank you so much. Um, he said, well, where are you going? And I said, I'm here to try and um, get to know some of the residents. He said, well, I am doing a music class on the top floor. Would you like to come with me? And I said, of course. So I... I went to the top floor with him and I sat on a chair and it was about to be Christmas. So there was a group of people, a group of residents sitting in a circle. They had tambourines. Some of them were hooked up to oxygen. Some of them were unable to sing, but they were still sitting. And everybody started to participate in Christmas carols. And I sat on this old upholstered chair in the corner and I knew that I was where I was supposed to be. And I knew that I was meant to be there. So much of the work that I do is based on intuition. It's not based on something that I can necessarily intellectually regurgitate to someone. There's no formula. It's very hard to teach this kind of work. It comes from a deep place inside of me and I think my intuitions are some kind of mixture of of my own life experiences mixed with the experiences that I've had working as a documentarian from a young age but something led me to that facility as is the case every time I start a project I feel I am led to a particular situation that I am meant to be there and I have felt that time and time again and once I'm in facilities or in particular environments, I find people that I realize I have, I was destined to connect with.
I mean, there's something very kismet about how I've met many of the people I've spent years with. I see them. I don't necessarily know much of anything about them factually or in terms of their, their literal story, but I feel something about them. Uh, there's an energy, there is uh, a desire to understand, a curiosity. I think curiosity is such an enormous part of what we do as storytellers. You have to be endlessly curious. And I think that's a recipe for a fulfilling life in general. I don't think that's necessarily just for journalists, for documentarians, for storytellers. I think if you're curious, there are no limits because you're endlessly engaging with the world beyond yourself. And that is feeding you the richness of life. So my curiosity has led me time and time again into the most peculiar, abnormal, atypical, unconventional circumstances where I've connected with the most beautiful people who have blessed me with a lifetime of knowledge, of emotion. And that began at that nursing home in Los Angeles when I was 14. I was sitting with people, many of whom were in hospice. Uh, so hospice is, is often a, a program, uh, a, sometimes a section within a facility where people are placed when doctors are under the impression that, that their lives may end. So in those situations, sitting in hospice as a 14-year-old, I learned how to be with people in their most compromising moment and in, in, in the face of the great unknown, in the, in the face of their mortality, and try to find these windows of grace, of dignity, of humor, of joy, to be able to really sit with people and go beyond whatever their social classification is, whatever the assumptions are about them, looking at them superficially. I think ultimately what longitudinal documentary hopefully affords is an ability to get to somebody's essence. And I think essence is what we all hope for in our lives or to be known for right beyond everything just to be known as a person with all our complexities and there is a great power in in sitting with people and allowing them to share who they are i don't just mean verbally as in recounting their life stories i mean obviously many of the people that i was working with were you know in their 80s and 90s with very full lives, multicultural, multilingual people who had emigrated to the U.S. as children, as adults, people whose families had been here for generations. A diverse set of subjectivities were presented to me in this particular facility. But nonetheless, it's not just knowing people based on what they are saying to you about their lives. It's also just trying to hold them in what they're not saying or, or what they're not sharing. To just acknowledge someone else as a complicated human being. I think that's very challenging to do for people that are very close to you, though, in your personal life. So I've tried to adopt some of what I'm describing in my process with human beings to the human beings in my private life. It's not always easy to accept the complexity of a parent or a spouse, a partner, a close friend. There's so much at stake in those dynamics, ego, um, perception. But with documentary photography, at least the kind that I'm so passionate about and engaging with, it's an open space where you can be whoever. Um, you can be safe to be the complicated self that you are. And my hope is to just continue to learn how to hold that space so people can feel comfortable in sharing the deepest parts of themselves. Even if some of those parts are maybe perceived as unflattering, um, 
we certainly all have dark parts of ourselves and perhaps we would have a more compassionate world if we were able to honor all parts of who we are, even the parts that maybe we're embarrassed to share. Photography is an anchor. That's a sentence that gives me a lot to think about. And as you said, you always try to make long-term projects. It's the opposite of the news. It's anthropology. It's the way of studying the human that you are documenting and photographing. Yeah, I... News is critical. I work on assignments that have quick turnarounds, absolutely, where I have to be in an environment and document and soon after send the work over to be published. That work is challenging. It's grueling. You're working under time-sensitive constraints. But my passion is definitely in long-term work where you get to spend years with people in their private spaces developing a relationship. I feel like the many people I've documented over years, they experience so much from our relationship, from feeling like they can share certain parts of themselves with me that they haven't been able to with anyone else, to a sense of comfort that someone is taking interest in, in their lives. And many of the people that I shadow don't really understand why their, their story even matters initially. You know, they'll, they'll be, they'll wonder, well, why are you interested in me? You know, what do, what does my story have to offer? And we each have a story and who we choose to share that story with is sacred. And as documentary photographers, it's our responsibility to hold that weight and, and, and realize and affirm how precious it is for someone to share their lives with us. So I feel like with longitudinal work, you're entering a covenant with someone where there's a tremendous amount of trust. There's a cathartic element often for people. I work with women, girls, children who have been impacted by adverse childhood experiences, by complex trauma. I'm working on a long-term project about the impact of PTSD, complex PTSD on a young woman's life over a number of years. So I'm working with, with people who who have a traumatic experience, traumatic experiences around attachment, around memory, and around intimacy, ultimately. I think we don't often talk about the impact of sexual trauma, um, of childhood abuse, of domestic violence, on intimacy, on the ability to connect with others, the ability to connect with ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally. And there is an emotional intimacy to being documented. And so often the work that I've been doing most recently with girls and women has been about making them collaborators in the process. I am working with one young woman and shadowing her story. And when the project is ready to be organized into book form, she and I are going to sit down for a period of time and we're going to work together to edit the photography for the book. And she's going to be contributing her own writing and poetry and a relative is going to be contributing some illustrations. So it's, it's important to have, it's critical to have that collaborative element as well. I mean, you are collaborating in that the collaboration is made real when someone consents to being photographed. That is inherently collaborative. It's not, I work to, to, to avoid and to never make real the sense of having something taken from you in the process, but more that we're sharing this experience 
and I have found and seen across the age spectrum a sense of empowerment from many of the people that I've shadowed in having their story recorded and shared and and solidified. The reflections have been inspiring to me to continue in the process of of collaborative efforts with the people that I shadow and to realize that the the greatest expert on a particular story is the person that you're shadowing. (laughs) They are the expert on their own lives. So they lead and they lead you into a complete unknown because in what we do, we cannot control anything. We can't control the moments. We can't control anybody's decisions. We are completely out of control, surrendered to the life of the person in front of us. And that can be very hard in moments. I mean, when I'm working with people in vulnerable circumstances and there is violence at hand or self-harming decisions or any kind of potentially compromising circumstances, you come up against a set of ethical concerns as a documentarian that can be very challenging and you have to realize that there isn't much you can do because people are their own agents they are sovereign individuals and you learn in the process of photographing someone that you cannot control other people i think each of us in our own lives we wish we see family, friends, loved ones, doing things that maybe we wouldn't want them to do or making choices that are tough for us to swallow. But ultimately, everybody around us is going to make their own choices. We are each going to make our own choices. And none of us can can be controlled in the sense of um, somehow inserting and absorbing knowledge given from somebody else. I mean, I'm certainly somebody that's lived a life of I had to act out whatever I was going to do to be able to learn. And that's often the case. You know, we have to each make our own ways, our own path to understanding. And it's, it's rare that what somebody else tells us as the right thing to do is what we're going to follow. I mean, that was very much my early career. I followed what I thought was for me, I followed my truth, whatever that was. And maybe in moments it wasn't glamorous and maybe in moments it wasn't what I should have done, but it was my life at that point. And we each follow our individual paths. And I think the role of a documentarian is to just be on that path with someone regardless of the circumstances and to radically accept our own powerlessness over somebody else or a particular community because we're simply there to be with them in solidarity um, through our work, through our presence. And that surrender is incredibly powerful because it puts you in touch with the lack of control that you have, period, over most things in our lives. Um, How much control do we truly have? I mean, I think the pandemic has proven that time and time again. We are fallible as humans, and there's a tremendous amount of mystery in our lives. And Isadora Rakosovsky, in this last decade, the decade of the tens, you were implicated in, uh, I would say, five or six personal projects. How do you pick them and choose them? Because you know that when you are going in, into a project, you will need to be very implicated. And as you said, following them in personal space. So there is a very important decision to be made at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I work often on multiple projects at once and each project is at a, a different stage of development. So I can be beginning one project while continuing another project that I've been working on for five or five or six years. I have one project I've been working on for 
It'll be nearly nine years soon with one woman and I haven't shared one single image from that project with anyone, maybe two people um, and very few with those two people. And I've kept the project to myself this whole time. This particular woman, we met on the internet. I was doing research and I found her on a website <laughs> and there was a video of her and she was being interviewed by someone, kind of an amateur uh, video from by a friend. And uh, this was the era of chat rooms and and Reddit, um, <laughs> and uh, not that it's no longer an era of Reddit, um, but it was uh, it was a, a an era which continues. I can't say this is over, where you can just get lost on the internet. And we, this is the only person I've ever connected with online. And I tell this story as just an indicator of of how you can't plan these projects because. They are based on the unplanned nature of somebody's life. So I connected with her. I knew from this video that I should meet her, like that I needed to know her. And that sense of urgency transcends every circumstance. I mean, that's very much what I feel with nearly everybody that I spend time with. There's an empathy and an understanding that is created almost immediately with someone and I, I feel I have to know them. And that was the case with her. I saw this sequence of remarks and watched her body language and felt like she was somebody that I wanted to connect with. So I contacted her and I asked her if we could meet. And when we met, I knew that she was somebody that I was going to to shadow. And she asked, well, how long do you think it's going to take for you to create this body of work? And originally I had said to her, this was back in 2013, that it was probably going to take six months. <laughs> and uh, it's been nine years. <laughs> so... You don't know where something is going to go because you're open and free to be with people and their lives can go in any which direction. So I continued to work with her and it's now a photographic project with a tremendous amount of text about her life and also a documentary film that aligns with the photography. And I'm hoping to share it when we reach the 10th year of documentation. And then I have many other projects in the works at once. And I spend each year alternating being in different places, managing being on different assignments for publications, and then working on my personal work. And I don't necessarily know when something is going to be done with long-term work, unless I'm given a deadline from a publication. But even when the work is published, I continue the relationships with the people that I shadow, and I often continue to photograph them because I can do document them and the work can be published in chapters, or or I just continue because, it, because why not? I mean, I spend so much time with them and and the connection is there and, and, and I, I go and I visit and I spend time and, and the relationships continue and the photography then continues from that. But in terms of how do I know, I usually have a sense that I want to photograph in a particular environment. I knew this about the juvenile justice system as a teenager. I had been dating a guy when I was 14 named Johnny <laughs> and uh, he was arrested at a party and he ended up in juvenile hall and then struggled with a myriad of mental health problems after that and I never saw him again and I've tried to track him down over the years but he's become this elusive figure. And from that experience with him and my own sense of rejection and isolation as a teenager, 
dealing with a lot of dysfunction in my family at that point, I was inspired to document in the juvenile justice system, the juvenile detention system in the U.S. because it was a very underrepresented arena in terms of photography because of access issues, because of facilities, you know, predominantly not allowing photographers inside to document young people in these facilities. But I was very driven to be able to get access to a juvenile detention center. I also thought it was very important as a young person to be able to document in a facility and be kind of around the same age as the people that I was shadowing. I thought that would be an important part of the process. Though, honestly, it didn't really make much of a difference once I got into these facilities, being in close age with the people I was shadowing because I was an outsider to them. I was coming from outside of their communities. I was coming from outside of the, the institutions. And these kids, you know, as I discuss with, with experiences working with people with complex trauma, with, with sustained childhood trauma, they're naturally wary of somebody trying to get close to them. And that's completely understandable. So it takes time. And working in these facilities, I wasn't always given the luxury of time. So it was, it was, it was inevitably part of the process to, to negotiate with, with systems and institutions to be able to get enough time to, to make young people feel comfortable with me, um, to make staff feel comfortable with my presence as well. So I started that process when I was 15. I, uh, I was writing letters um, to facilities all over the country, and I was just rejected one after the other. I actually have a box of the rejection letters that could make a really cool uh, installation at some point. And by the time, <laughs> yeah, by the time I was 16, I couldn't get in anywhere in the US. I had one facility that had told me maybe and then rejected me after six months. So I thought about trying in Europe. Um, both of my parents are immigrants. My father came here as a refugee and, and I speak other languages. So I thought I would contact facilities abroad. So I contacted the UK, Ireland, France, Germany, the Netherlands, a lot of Western Europe, and then started working on letters to facilities in Eastern European countries. Isadora Kosowski, I don't want to put some pressure on you, but you just said that it was the ninth year and you said that it will be released on the 10 years. So basically it will be uh, out uh, very soon in 2022. The project uh, where I've been documenting a woman in Northern California for, for the almost the last decade, um, Yeah, I, I'm hoping. Who knows? <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like by the, I have some kind of sense that in the 10th year, it'll be ready to be shared. If I understood correctly, you want to, okay. If I understood correctly, in the first step, you take pictures to heal yourself. And by doing it, it also helped to heal the world. I, I hope so. I mean, I think, I think each of our individual social justice related, um, actions help to heal the world. I think it's a collective effort. I know starting out that I understood that it was going to take more than me to be able to help heal the world or, or piece our broken world back together. But I know and I believe that storytelling is, is part of that revolution. I believe storytelling is a means of revolution, that there is a power, a potency, a revolutionary force occurs when you share your story with someone. I mean, that doesn't necessarily need to be in a public way, but I think when you bear your soul to someone else, you're participating in a, in a world that is more compassionate, more empathetic, more inclusive. When you share your, wor your world to someone else, your inner experience 
we're participating in in an environment and a culture of connection. So phot- photography, ph- no, no, photography is is certainly a documentary. Documentary photography is certainly, to me, uh, a means of participating in in some kind of collective healing for sure. I would really much like to talk about a very recent project that piqued my attention, uh, a project that is called Senior Love Triangle. And you even made a TEDx conferences to talk about it. Yes, it was actually, I spoke at a, at a, the main TED conference because I am a TED fellow, uh, which is a global program for innovators and change makers in particular disciplines. And I had the honor of speaking at TED 2018 in Vancouver about my project Senior Love Triangle. It was hard to be able to fit my, any of my projects into a short form lecture structure. But I felt like with that project, I could um, organize their story, Jeannie Will and Adina's story into that lecture TED Talk format. And I was so honored to be able to share their story in that format with with the TED audiences. And now the talk is is online and has been shared, uh, which I'm very grateful for. I started a project when I was 17, about three senior citizens living in a retirement community in East Hollywood. I was documenting a woman who was struggling with the impact of dementia on her life. And I was at a facility on a Friday evening and I happened to see three people, Jeannie, Will, and Adina, hand in hand. Well, it was actually Adina and William holding hands and Jeannie was walking nearby. And I was struck immediately with these three individuals. And I knew that I had to find out more about them. So I asked about them at the facility and the one of the staff members said, oh, you're, ta- you're talking about the threesome. And, uh, and I thought, whoa, threesome. Um, so I approached them and I didn't necessarily know, you know what, what their reaction was going to be. And they were open to having me spend some time with them. I didn't know if I was going to be focusing on them for a project. I didn't, at that point, fully understand their dynamic or their dynamics at hand in, in the the relationships, these simultaneous relationships that were going on um, amongst the three of them. William had met Adina at one facility and then he was kicked out of that facility and then moved into another retirement home where he met Jeannie and not wanting to end the relationship with Adina, he had a relationship with both women. And initially, they, Adina and Jeannie didn't want the triangular setup. But then over time, they started to accept it. And for me, working with them was such an intriguing and significant trajectory and understanding how relationships can take on many forms and a relationship is a relationship and we should feel free to experience connection and love and intimacy in whatever way we want and that includes older people So they inspired me to think boldly um, and openly about how we each experience intimacy. When we age, our desires don't change. Our desires for connection, our desires for tenderness, our desires for, for intimacy, for vulnerability, for love, that doesn't change. So being with them was continually a reminder to to embrace connection in in whatever form that it materializes in. Jenny, Will, Adina, and uh, they are uh, basically uh, challenging socio-cultural norms uh, projected about, as you said, the elderly. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They are. I mean, I think that we often think of older people and their stories in a very constraining box. We limit uh, the extent of their lives when, in fact, when you're older, you live a very full life in many circumstances. You've lived uh, a varied life and, and your life continues and, and, and being older is a, a new chapter. And each person defines that chapter on their own. And so often our depictions of older people are of them being someone's grandparent or of them dying. And there is so much more. There are so many more stories to be shared to be able to create a more nuanced perception of older people. Because I do firmly believe that ageism is a significant, disruptive, dangerous, and violent form of discrimination. And I've seen the effects of ageism time and time again on the lives of the people that I've shadowed. I would say ageism and ableism continually, one second, sorry. <laughs> I don't think that we speak enough about ageism in social justice conversations, discrimination of older people. We don't speak enough about ableism and about how um, we have a cultural problem in the US around, around how we perceive and devalue older people. And I've seen that repeatedly over the last 14 years, and I've seen that particularly highlighted through the pandemic with the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on older people. So my hope is that we as storytellers continue to embrace more nuanced ways of documenting older people. This is very interesting, Isadora Rakosowski, because recently I've discussed with Ed Kashi, who made a word called Aging in America. So there is definitely a link uh, between this subject of society and photographer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, Ed is a good friend of mine and his work on aging is so important. So... Precisely in this work, the pictures goes from, for example, an argument uh, between the three of them or Will's open palm. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, relationships are nonlinear. Um, they present a range of emotions, reactions. How we behave in romance is not necessarily how we behave in a workplace, in a friendship, in other kinds of relationships. There's something about romantic love that can bring out the best and the worst in each of us. It's a space of great tenderness. And I think that in their story, that's, that's very much uh, clearly, clearly shared. And the work aims to, particularly in the book format, highlight their, the images from the project, but also their words in the book. There are sections of dialogue, um, because when I was sitting with them, I often in note format would write their conversations down line by line. So when it went to, going and sitting down with Kelly Blatz, who's a filmmaker and an actor, to write the film Senior Love Triangle, which is an adaptation of the documentation into a narrative fiction format with actors. I had so much material to be able to pull from because I had been jotting down word for word what they had been saying to each other. And much of that dialogue and first person account is in the book as well. I watched the trailer of um, this uh, documentary that you've made and the image are just stunning. So I guess that uh, there is a huge invest investment of work uh, into this project that took, I guess, uh, several months to record and shoot. Well, the photography, the documentary photography was compiled over a number of years. And then Jeannie, Will, and Adina broke up. 
and went separate ways. Jeannie moved to another part of the state and Adina moved outside of the state and then William and Adina passed away a few years ago and I felt that there was still so much to explore which gave birth to this fiction film where we cast actors in the role of the three people and recreated their world. So it's a completely different interpretation of their story because it's not them, it's their their actors interpreting Jeannie, Will, and Adina. But nonetheless, it, it tells their story in another format, which was important to me because I felt like there was more to be shared of their story. And I'm very glad that we created the film, which took, gosh, four years to develop and shoot and put out in the world, four or five years. And did you had the opportunity to watch a sort of reactions from from them? Well, unfortunately, Adina and William passed away before the book was published, before the film was able to be shared publicly. So they weren't able to see it, unfortunately. But I do feel their presence around a lot um, in the process. I, When I opened the box of books during the first shipment of books to the U.S. last year, When I opened the box, it definitely felt like Adina and William were around, uh, present, in spirit, and I think that I think that they would be pleased. Adina was was an artist herself, a writer, a poet, and I think that she would embrace this this work, these works. When I was 16, I was able to get access to a facility in Romania to document young people in a prison for those ages 14 to 21. It was a facility for boys, for young men. I still to this day don't fully understand why they let me in, but they did. And uh, I went there when I was 16. I had financing from uh, an organization called Spotlight, which was providing grants and awards to young artists. And I was able to go to Romania for a summer and then return the summer thereafter to document in the prison in a city called Craiova. And I just, I just had, um, Such a seminal experience there, sitting in these cells with these young men for hours, um, speaking to them through an interpreter, but still having a, a kind of shared language with one another, regardless of the inability to speak directly. And then I returned to the U.S., having had these experiences being embedded in a in this prison it was actually two different prisons in Romania with these young men and then started my journey of documenting once I had turned 18 in the juvenile justice system in the U.S. at facilities all over the country but particularly in New Mexico and when I was 17, I, I went to university and I ended up leaving to be able to go on the road as a photojournalist. And everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought that I was going to fail, that it was going to be impossible to, at that young age, be on the road documenting in one facility after another and, and, and trying to create work at that point. But it wasn't impossible. It was actually the most important decision of my career to leave school you know, at the age of 17, 18 and go on the road with my camera. And eventually I went back to university and got my degree a few years later. But those years on the road, um, living with certain families, being in one city after another, one rural town after another, That was my formative education and what I do today. And my experiences at that age, which I don't often talk about, were so rooted in, in gender bias and some kind of understanding that, you know, young women, a consciousness, uh, 
and a bias that people in the most progressive circles were exhibiting towards me that just because I was a girl and looked very young and was very young, that I couldn't be doing the kind of intense, committed, precarious journalism that I was doing. And what I have to say is that they were wrong. And in my work now, I encourage and I'm very much a proponent for mentorship of other young women and encourage people of all ages and all identities, gender identities, to embrace their truth, regardless of what other people are saying to them, because there was a fire within me at that age that continues. And I am so glad that I just went forth in all my fear uh, into this unknown territory because from it I've made you know some of the most significant relationships of my career living on the road at that point and I I encourage other young women to to live their truth even if even if it's terrifying I am very grateful thank you so much for your time thank you so much Isadora Kosowski thank you for having me this was great